Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I've been traveling around China as much as possible recently. It's important to get out and see what's going on in smaller cities. Don Wineland is The Economist's China business and finance editor. He's been out on the road in the north of the country, visiting the city of Zhangzhou and poking around some building sites. I took a tour of some of the largest housing developments in the city. There's one that stood out. It's a massive development. There's 6,000 flats there. Don doesn't have a special penchant for cranes and heavy machinery, or at least one that we know about. Instead, he's sussing out the state of affairs for China's property developers. It's an industry critical to the Chinese economy, and they are in crisis. The Zhangzhou site has been inactive and incomplete for four years. The cranes and the workers left in 2019 because the developer could no longer pay the suppliers to come and build the homes. China's property developers have been struggling since the government put restrictions on their lines of credit. It's halted work and put companies out of business. Part of the problem is that in China, people buy their homes in advance, long before they're built. So this development in Zhangzhou, like most others across the country, has already been paid for by people or investors who are still waiting to get the homes that they're owed. One of the government's biggest fears is that millions of people pay for homes and then don't receive them and potentially stop paying their mortgages or even protest in the streets. To kickstart the industry back into action, the Chinese government has stepped in with credit, helping developers to continue the halted projects. It's brought developments like this one in Zhangzhou back to life. What I found was a pretty active construction site. You know, there were large trucks coming in and out of the place. I could see workers up in the towers. But the wider problem hasn't gone away. Thousands of building projects have been halted or dramatically slowed. So is government intervention enough to stabilize the industry? And if not, how bad will China's property crisis get? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Los Angeles, I'm Alice Forward. And in today's show, just how bad is China's property crisis going to get? First, we look at the dire state of the property development sector. This is the biggest downturn since the sector evolved into kind of its modern iteration. Then, we find out how real estate came to loom so large in the Chinese economy. The renminbi is trapped in the Chinese economy, so people find something to invest in, and the investment is property. And finally, we ask, where is this going to end? You have local government financing. So basically, they have almost no revenue in the past two years. 
the local government, they will stop spending. Hey, Alice. Hey, Tom. Hello. Hey, Mike. Alice, why am I recording three hours late again? By which I mean, what are you up to in LA? <laughs> well, I'm very grateful, number one, that uh, we're not taping at 4.30 in the morning, as would be the norm. 7.30 is plenty early enough, but thank you. This is just a, a quick pit stop for me, actually. I'm on my way to Japan for a belated sort of long honeymoon trip. I'll actually be out of the office for three whole weeks, which I am greatly looking forward to, although obviously I will miss making the show with you both while I'm away. Yes, you'll miss it terribly, I imagine. <laughs> I feel like I know about half a dozen people at the moment who are on belated honeymoon trips to Japan, but it's very important to prop up the tourism numbers. They're still not quite recovered to pre-COVID levels. Yeah, the uh, nice thing about calling it belated honeymoon is that you can uh, swan off for several weeks and uh, it's hard for people to say anything about it. But uh, yeah, I'm obviously very keen to prop up Japan's economy. I've got all my yen ready to go. So on the subject of economies being propped up, before we get to the subject of the chaos in China's property market, we do have some news. That's right, Mike. So in the middle of October, The Economist is launching a new podcast subscription service called Economist Podcast Plus. Yes. And while some of our podcasts will remain free to listen to, including our daily show, The Intelligence the only way to keep listening to Money Talks every week will be with a subscription. Of course, if you already subscribe to The Economist in print or online, all podcasts will be included as a part of your subscription. If you don't, you'll need to sign up for a subscription to The Economist or to Podcast Plus. And the good news is, if you sign up now, you can get an annual podcast subscription for half price, less than $25 for the year, just a couple of pounds, dollars or euros a month. So for less than the price of a coffee, you'll be able to listen to all of our weekly podcasts, like Money Talks, but also Drum Tower, which lifts the lid on what's happening in China, and our science and tech show Babbage. You'll also be able to listen to our amazing series like The Prince, which charts the rise of Xi Jinping, and Next Year in Moscow, which follows Russian dissidents who escaped the country after Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. This may all come as a bit of a surprise, so we wanted to explain why we're making this change. So far, we've been able to support our podcasts with advertising, but we want to do much more. One of the things we're doing is launching a new series, Boss Class, which I'm really looking forward to. It's a new management series from our most popular columnist, Bartleby, on how not to be a terrible manager and perhaps how to be a great one. Our daily news podcast, The Intelligence, will also be launching a new weekend show. That'll be a space for the very best of The Economist's journalism. It's not like anything you'll have heard before on Economist Podcasts, and it has some really, really powerful storytelling, and we're all very excited for you to hear it. With subscribers, we will be able to dedicate even more time and more effort to making our podcasts as good as they can possibly be. There is more information and a link to sign up in the show notes. But for now, let's get on with this week's show, which is one that I have really been looking forward to us doing for a while now, because I am totally gripped by everything that is going wrong in China's economy. So, Mike... Tell us why we're talking about China property now. Yes, absolutely. So there have been rumblings of difficulties within the Chinese property development sector for a while now. But in recent weeks, those rumblings have been developing into a full-blown crisis. China's economic health is uniquely intertwined with its property market. Property development has become embedded with the functioning of both household and local government finances – 
So when that sector wobbles, economists, investors and interested people like myself take notice. And I feel like every week now I hear more and more about jitters in the Chinese property market. So what's behind all the turmoil? Well, I could try to answer that, but the person who's best placed to help us understand what's happening in China at the moment is our China business and finance editor, Don Wineland, who's in Shanghai. Don, welcome back to Money Talks. Great to have you with us. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks. So first off, let's get into why we're talking about the China property crisis again now. What's the most recent news? What's going on? The most recent news is with this company called Country Garden. Not long ago, they were the largest property developer in China. They're a massive company. They're one of the biggest property developers on the planet. They missed a payment in August to bondholders. That was a really big deal because Country Garden was not viewed as part of this crisis. They were seen as a healthy company that would make it through as many other companies were defaulting. Beyond that, the problems at Country Garden are really part of a much bigger crisis. So going back to 2021, we had the Evergrande default. Evergrande is also a massive developer and the most indebted developer in the world. And then amid all of those problems, you have construction sites that are basically shutting down because developers can't pay their workers or pay their suppliers you have people not receiving their homes because they haven't been built. And you have a lot of investors who just aren't being paid by these real estate companies. So I find this absolutely fascinating. And to put this into some context for our listeners, Country Garden bonds maturing as late as 2031 were yielding less than 4% for large parts of 2021. These were not considered to be particularly risky bonds. All of this, Don, stemmed from a specific government intervention, the sort of problems that we're looking at now. It seems like it might have backfired. Why did the Chinese government change the rules when it came to real estate developers? What were they trying to achieve? The rules that were put in place about three years ago are often referred to as the three red lines. So these were restrictions on the amount of leverage that developers could take on. The reason why the government did this is because these companies were taking on way more leverage than you would expect companies of this size to take on. So we're just talking about massive debts here. The Chinese government has been very concerned about this for a long time. And I really think the government was forced to put these restrictions in place. As many problems as this has created over the past two to three years, we can also imagine what these companies would look like if the government had not restricted the level of leverage that they take on. So really, they were trying to avoid a much larger crisis in the future. So we have this problem of property developers that can no longer build. Um, a lot of them are very strapped for cash. Why does this leave a lot of Chinese households in the lurch? Is something specific about the funding model? Could you go into that a little bit, Don? Yes. So for well over a decade, Chinese property developers have been using payments from average households as a key source of liquidity for building homes. The rate that they have been building at was too quick to simply be supported by bank and bond financing. So they needed other sources. And developers take payments from households long before they hand over the keys to the homes. About 50% of 
country gardens total liabilities is simply to households, not to banks, not to bondholders. So when these companies stop building, when they run out of liquidity, that means there's lots of average people who are not going to get to move into their new flats on time. So people who are familiar with the Chinese economy and the role that property plays might be thinking, hang on, haven't we been here before? They might remember 2014, 15, when there was another sort of real challenge to Chinese property development. Is this different? Is it a continuation of the same issue? Where would you sort of rank this on the scale of problems that we're aware of in the past in the Chinese property sector? Yeah, I mean, this is the biggest downturn since the sector evolved into kind of its modern iteration. The problems between 2014 and 2015 were severe, but, you know, there was another wave of policy loosening, you know, that really brought the sector back to life. What we're dealing with now is the overhang from zero COVID when people just simply couldn't go outside, even if they wanted to buy a home and the after effects of the three red lines policy. There's been a much more serious downturn in sentiment among average people. And that's what's playing out now. Thanks very much, Don. If you could stick around, we will come back to you again at the end of the show. Sounds good. So to understand how China got into a position where the property market is so make or break for the economy, I wanted to speak to Anne Stevenson-Yang. She's a co-founder of J Capital, an activist research firm and a long-time watcher of the Chinese property market who herself used to live in Beijing. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. So tell us a little bit about the background here. When did you become interested in the Chinese real estate market and what triggered your interest? Oh gosh, ages ago. I think it was probably 2000 eight or nine when I started circulating around and looking at property projects in China. What interested me was the gobsmacking number of huge new projects going up that were empty and that were being pre-sold two years ahead of time. Little did I know that this would go on for 15 years. So what is your view of why the Chinese economy did become quite so real estate focused in the first place? Well, I mean, China poured cash into the economy in 2008 to 9. There was such terror at the global financial crisis that the government just washed cash over the economy with the idea that they would promote domestic demand in order to make up for falling external demand. And so that's exactly what happened. And so there's all this cash floating around and it can't get out of the country because it's soft currency renminbi. You can't go to the bank and buy dollars with your renminbi or buy any other currency. You have to go through a lot of hoops in order to meet a quota that allows you to use a certain amount of renminbi to buy hard currency. So the renminbi is trapped in the Chinese economy. So people find something to invest in and the investment is property. And so the values shoot up to like 20, 30 times people's income. You've talked a lot as well over the years about the speculative element to Chinese property investment. Where do you think that comes from? People in China feel that real estate is a reliable investment because it's a physical thing. So the bank can't take it away from me, or at least that's the perception. So people would trade real estate the way Americans or Europeans trade bonds. 
as something that would gradually accrete in value, but they would have in their hand. And then, you know, if something goes wrong with the market, they could always live in it. So you have home buyers on one side of the property transaction. And then interestingly, on the other side, you have the Chinese local government. For them, land sales have become this crucial fiscal tool, and it's an essential component of how they fund themselves. How did that situation emerge? Well, local governments are in the strange position of not being allowed to levy their own taxes. It's a unitary system, the Chinese government is. And so local governments can't make their own separate budgets and raise their own taxes. So in 1998 or so, the central government came up with this brilliant idea, which is that they would lend money to local governments based on land collateral because land is the one thing that local governments own. So governments would just happily collateralize their land and borrow massive amounts of money. But land is more valuable if it's being built out as residential housing instead of as industrial land. And so what these governments would do is they would take a piece of land and they would build a road and therefore wave a wand over it that says, okay, now it's not industrial anymore, it's residential. And the value of the land would double they would then either collateralize and borrow money against it, or they'd sell it to a developer who would clear off anybody who lived there and then build big residential towers. So it was a bonanza for local governments. The real estate developers are a focal point for a lot of this because they may be defaulting on their bonds or their share prices have crashed. But in some ways, they're just the intermediaries here, right? Between the local government that desperately needs to sell the land and the households that don't have a lot of other investment opportunities. Is that a good way of thinking about it? Yeah, in a way you could say that. I mean, there's also the fact that China maintains a system of rural and urban apartheid that they call a huko or residence permit. So about uh, 60, 66% of the country is designated rural. And when you're rural, you have less opportunity for education. The quotas are smaller for getting to college. You have worse hospital care, you don't have as good roads, and so on and so forth. So there's this kind of roulette in the Chinese system of people wanting to become urban instead of rural. So what the local governments do is they say, okay, so sell me your farmhouse and your farmland, and I'll give you an apartment on, let's say, 120th of the space And now you're going to be an urban person instead of a rural person. And that means that you have access to all these better facilities. So for the government, it means that the land value goes up. For the person, it's like, oh, wow, I won the lottery. I get to be an urban person and my kids get to go to school and I get a clean apartment instead of laboring in the barley fields. It's a win-win for everybody until the market crashes. Now, How important is this market internationally? Should people expect global spillovers from this sort of seizure of Chinese real estate into places in other parts of the world? Where should we be looking out for that? The most important impacts are on the commodity exporters. So Australia, Brazil, to a certain extent, Canada, countries that export a lot of iron ore and coking coal in particular, because those go into housing. There's also copper, there's other types of commodities. I think that people will see that Chinese people have now gotten, at least on paper, a lot poorer. And so the phenomenon of seeing Chinese people all around the world lining up to get into the Versace stores and filling all the tourist destinations, that's drizzling away. 
and you're not going to see that so much anymore. Beyond that, you'll see the currency deflate, which means that Chinese exports will get a lot cheaper and they will export deflation into the world. And there are a few other effects. I think the effects on the world at large are not massive. It will affect global GDP by just a few basis points. Within China, it's very tragic, of course. That's fascinating and extremely worrying. And thank you very much for joining us. Not at all. Thank you very much. So, Alice, Tom, the thing I find really interesting speaking to someone like Anne is, and I don't think I'm categorizing incorrectly here, she would have been very much considered a sort of bearish person on the structure of China's economy if we were talking about a decade ago. She was flagging these problems with Evergrande, the particularly large and vulnerable Chinese property developer, and with the real estate system more generally back then. It's really been quite a long time of seeing this build up. If you go back and see what she was writing then, well, it's basically all coming true. And the only difference is that the scale is now much larger than it was when people started getting worried. And in fact, a lot of the takes that people found very pessimistic back then have actually turned out not to necessarily be pessimistic enough. The dynamics are exactly as they've been suggested. You have this dependence on land sales, household debt, overinvestment, overly leveraged property companies as these crazy intermediaries indebted up to the eyeballs. But it's not just Evergrande and other sort of high yield, slightly risky developers. It's the very mainstream private builders that seem to be seriously struggling. And it's one of the useful reminders that there are sort of financial laws out there. What goes up must come down. Water runs downhill. Sometimes you can spend a very long time in this sort of suspended financial reality, but it doesn't seem like it can last forever. Yeah, I agree. It definitely can't last forever, although it has lasted for an enormously long amount of time. I was struck by the way Anne described sort of the various precipitating factors for this crisis, one of which was the sort of wash of liquidity and stimulus that the Chinese government put into place in 2008, 2009, which obviously is an enormously long time ago, but is one of the things that she thinks sort of helped kick off the problems that we're seeing now. I was pretty struck by the way she described the root of the problem in general as being sort of two-pronged. One is that sort of huge liquidity gut just over a decade ago, and the other one is this sort of mismatch of perverse incentives she described with, you know, how land taxes and how local governments are funded. Those seem to have just encouraged everyone to keep sort of pushing up prices and to sort of keep things going until at least a little while ago when the government decided that developer debt had just got out of control. For me, this discussion has really left me reflecting on just how rapid and dramatic China's transformation from a kind of rural agrarian society to a heavily urbanized one has been. So in 1980, the urbanization rate in China was just 20%. And now, four decades later, it's around 65%. And in America, the equivalent transition took about 90 years. So to put it in perspective, today, China has more than three times as many urban dwellers as America, and it has more than 160 cities that have more than a million inhabitants, which to me is absolutely mind-blowing. And that transition has brought with it a mammoth program of property development to house all those people. And when you had this tidal wave of demand that kept pushing house prices up and up and up, it made sense to leverage the sector with massive amounts of debt. 
now the awkward question is, how do you deleverage that business as demand slows without causing the whole thing to come tumbling down as people lose that faith that they developed in real estate as an investment? After the break, we'll explore how the prolonged downturn in property sales is starting to be felt by local governments in China who rely on the revenue from land sales to fund themselves. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before the break, we heard how the health of the Chinese economy has come to depend on the continued success of the property sector. And to find out where the effects of this latest property slowdown are being felt, I spoke to Rosalia Yao. She's a Beijing-based China property analyst at Gavacal, a financial research firm. Rosalia, thank you very much for joining Money Talks. Hi, hello, Mark. To start with, could you tell us a little bit about where we are now with the Chinese property sector as you see it? What's the current situation in terms of sales and the health of the developers? Yeah, sure. So as the latest, national sales is about 55% of pre-pandemic level in July. We haven't got the data for August, but we have daily sales in 30 major cities, so you can have an idea. The sales haven't improved. Actually, it's sort of worsening in August. And uh, give you a reference, so last November, December, when we have the everybody got COVID and everybody staying home, and at that time, we are still about more than 60% of pre-pandemic level in terms of housing sales. So clearly, current situation is pretty worrying. Sales are bad. That's definitely a very bad news for developers. And so far this year, we have a few big developers. They announced that they cannot pay that anymore. And our research showed almost 50%, half of the private developers, they have cash problem to cover their interest payment. So things are pretty dangerous in my view. It's not the first year of sharp corrections. It's a consecutive second year squeeze on developers and also local government financing. And the bad news is that things are not stabilizing and it looks likely to continue worsening. So that's, I think, one word, things are not great, very bad. So is financial distress in the banking system or the rest of the financial system more broadly something we have to worry about in this case? I know for a long time people have monitored things like non-performing loans in Chinese banks, what should we be looking at? I do think so. Other people have different views, but I think we do need to be very careful on this problem. So why is pretty obvious? You have local government financing, almost at least a third of their financing is coming from land sales, property-related transactions. 
So basically, they have almost no revenue in the past two years. If things keep going on like that, the local government, they will stop spending, right? Because there is no revenue. We know they have a lot of land sales revenue, but they spend most of them. But if you do not have revenue, you do not spend. So the growth volume is actually quite important for local employment, for the overall economy, the situation. So in that sense, I think the impact is pretty big. And we do hear some local government, they are saying they cannot afford to pay the interest for their local government bonds. I mean, this is not a significant issue so far because it mainly happened in some remote interior provinces. But that could be a problem, could spread out to other bigger provinces. I think that's definitely not good. And the other channel, in my view, for property risk to spread to financial sector is the households. Their income is not stable. Their income is very low. They promise to pay several thousand quite monthly payments for their housing. But we know employment situation is not good. Income growth is poor. So many people could end up cannot afford the monthly payment they promised before. So you could end up rising NPL from the households on top of developers are defaulting, etc., etc. And what about pre-sold housing, which is obviously how most Chinese households buy property, often long before it's actually built. Are developers actually able to fulfill the liabilities they have there, the promises that they've made to build all these homes? Yeah, different compared with the last cycle, down cycle in 2014, 2015. At that time, the unsold but started housing stock was much higher than today. So... Today, the problem is a lot of housing being sold already, but they are yet to be completed. So policymakers' bottom line here is to do whatever they can to help developers to finish these projects. But on the other side, the floor space under construction is much higher than the unsold housing. It's running something like you know, more than 8 billion square meters. So that is a very large stock of uncompleted housing. So that means you need a lot of financing. And in my view, government financing is not enough. They are coming at several hundred billions since late last year. And at most, it's a few trillions. But the majority has to be coming from the sales. So in that sense, although the majority of 8 billion square meters of housing being already sold, but it's continue rely on the financing from the new sales. So housing sales not necessarily being pre-sales in the future, but sales in general are very important for developers to actually fulfill their commitment to finish the building. That's really interesting. Thank you very much, Rosalia. No problem. Thank you. I'm back now with The Economist, China business and finance editor, Don Wineland. Don, thank you very much for staying with us. No problem. Can you talk to us about the government response to the crisis bit, what they've done so far and what the options are that are available to them going forward? We've just seen the biggest policy package come through in over the past week and a half. Essentially, this was a nationwide reduction of the minimum 
down payments required for first and second mortgages. So this was a pretty big move. They're also lowering mortgage rates. They're doing a lot of different things. And of course, Chinese cities have control over their own real estate policy to some extent. So some of these things were actually done earlier in the year in the city of Zhengzhou. Of course, one of the things that the government's been doing throughout the crisis is to make sure that incomplete projects get built. I think this is the right thing to do. I mean, we're talking about kind of average households here not getting homes that they have already paid for. This is the crux of the solution to this problem. But it's a really difficult thing to work out. So these massive property developers that have been doing this business for up to 30 years, they're very, very good at organizing the supply chains, everything they need that goes into building these homes. When you have the local government stepping in to try to organize these projects, not everything works out. And unfortunately, I think there's going to be a lot of places where they just don't quite figure it out. So uh, what would a collapse look like? What's the really sort of negative scenario here? How do you think that would play out? When we think about a collapse, we should be thinking about a collapse for whom? So if we're talking about bond investors, well, it means, you know, probably getting massive haircuts or very little in return after some of these companies are restructured. For banks, it's probably a lot of bad debt, although it appears that most of the larger banks in China would be able to withstand a collapse. I think the people that we should really be thinking about here in the event of a collapse is average home buyers yet again. There are millions of homes being built across the country. If just one third of those got completed, you'd really have a social problem, I think, with people that have already paid for their homes and don't get the keys. So there's this running joke about people having predicted 10 of the last one Chinese property crises. You've lived in China for a long time. This is not your first property wobble rodeo. On the ground, does this feel really seriously different to you this time? And how do you think personally this is all going to play out? It does feel different this time. So, you know, I've been in China for 20 years. And one thing that's been quite noticeable for most of that time has been this amazing level of optimism that average Chinese people have about the future. This crisis, which really started kind of in the dark days of zero COVID, it just feels different. In terms of how this plays out over the coming, say, five years, I have two ways of thinking about this. One is that structurally speaking and over the longer term, the Chinese economy and demographics here are shifting. There's just not going to be enough people to buy the same amount of homes as we saw over the past decade. So the property sector just can't remain the cornerstone of the economy as it was in the past. The other thought that I have on this is that, you know, the Chinese government has been in tough positions before. They have, up until this point, usually found a way to deal with these problems. So I do think they will be able to maintain stability across society. I mean, that is kind of the core part of what the Communist Party is trying to do. Don, that's fascinating. I'd like to thank you also for saying flat earlier instead of apartment. We are a British publication after all. I'm sure our listeners in the UK will have appreciated that. Thank you very much for your time as well. Thanks a lot, Mike. So 
So, Tom, Alice, after everything you've heard today, how worried are you? Are you rushing to exit all of your Brazilian commodity positions? What are you thinking? Well, I don't have any positions in Brazil, but I certainly know plenty of people back in Australia with exposure in one way or another to the the country's mining industry, and I think it should be a big worry for them. Don touched on an interesting point there, though, which is that a bet against the Chinese property sector is really in some ways a bet against the competence of China's government, given how heavily involved it is in the economy. And if you'd asked me a few years ago whether that's a bet I'd be willing to take, I probably would have said no. But increasingly, I'm not so sure. Under Xi Jinping, power in China has become increasingly centralized. And I'm not sure that sets the country up particularly well for the challenge of of shifting its massive property sector to a more sustainable path. In fact, I think property is a sector that is uniquely ill-suited to an environment where decisions are highly centralized in far-off capital cities. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting parts of this for me is that clearly, as much as this crisis has been somewhat precipitated by these new rules the Chinese government has put in place on how much debt these developers can amass, clearly there's been some sort of malinvestment going on here. In the American housing crisis, the root of the problem was that there was too much or too lax lending to households. That financing pushed up prices. It encouraged a construction boom, which was ultimately where the sort of malinvestment occurred in the American cycle. And all of this went on for several years before it started to unwind. And that unwinding caused prices to fall and revealed the sort of extent of that malinvestment. Obviously, the Chinese property system works so differently, it can be hard to see the same puzzle pieces falling into place or sort of how precisely the sort of malinvestment has occurred. But clearly, the government clampdown has been motivated by the worry about too much financing going to these construction companies. And at the same time, the spectre of them having used, you know, all of this cash that they were given by households for specific projects, that they no longer have that cash to finish building those projects that they promised to that again suggests that there's been some misallocation of capital going on here. And so while the two systems work very differently, ultimately, the sort of original sin in real estate is typically made up of these same moving puzzle pieces. And none of this, at least from my perspective, bodes very well for the Chinese economy. I think the really big thing here for me is that I'd find this really surprising if you'd asked me in 2018 or so that the Chinese government has sort of undercut the sector, which is in the grand scheme of things, basically intermediating this big borrowing sector, the local governments in China, and this big funding part of the economy, the household sector. And basically, they've killed off something that sits in between these two sectors without changing the incentives for either the funders or the borrowers at all. Chinese local governments still don't have a good way of raising revenues now that land sales have been cut out from underneath them. And Chinese households still don't have any really particularly good investment options other than in housing. So it's this sort of damage done to the developers who ultimately are just playing this incentive game that's been created for them. I find really, really fascinating. And to add to which, this has been a huge source of growth for the Chinese economy. You know, it's really real estate intensive, not just in the sense of savings and investment borrowing, but in terms of actual physical economic activity. You know, there's a huge amount of construction and it really all now looks very, very worrying in terms of that continuing. And I think that, you know, it's hard to see what they replace this with. 
China also has problems on the export side that we've discussed before. It's a much larger economy than it used to be. It's very difficult to see how you replace that sort of massive source of growth. The final point that I always come back to is there's a tired old saying that the Chinese government or authoritarian governments in general are able to think in decades because, you know, they don't have the muckiness of democratic politics. And I think this is a great example that that really isn't true. This is something that's been coming up like a train for decades. And the Chinese government has had every opportunity to engage with this problem seriously. And at any point before this, it would have been better to engage with it because the financial excesses would have been smaller and it hasn't come up with an answer. And we're now left in a position where there doesn't seem to be a very easy way out. The policy response looks inadequate and it's hard to see them doing much more. And I think it looks like this gets worse before it gets better. I don't have anything cheerier than that to say on this pretty grim subject, but I think we've run out of time for the sort of worry session. Shall we turn to our stats of the week? Tom, Alice, what have you got for us? Well, luckily, I do have a fairly upbeat stat of the week to kick us off. My stat is 19%, which is the annual revenue growth in the most recent half-year results from Birkenstock, the sandal maker. And this is relevant because Birkenstock has just filed for an IPO after a pretty amazing run of growth. These shoes have gone through this bizarre shift in image in the last few years from kind of super dorky to all of a sudden very on trend. I noticed they even made an appearance in the Barbie movie, which I'm sure will do wonders for their sales. I have to say, I I love my Birkenstocks and, and I may keep wearing them even if they eventually go back out of style. Tom doesn't worry himself with trivial things such as fashion trends. He's a serious chap with his serious shoes. I'm just glad there that we got the reveal that Tom was saying, oh, they're actually cool now. I don't know whether you'd heard. By the way, I own and wear them. But I'm looking forward to its IPO, though. I feel like basically there's like a, something of an IPO frenzy going on. And the thing that kicked this all off was Carver, which is a salad chain in the US. It was like the first firm to go public in months and months after sort of capital markets have seized up. And so uh, now the uh, stock market has been saved by salad and sandals, which is obviously great. Well, uh, I know uh, Birkenstocks are a German shoe, so I'll stick with the German theme. And uh, my stat of the week this week is 3.3%, which is the percentage complete that the Zeit Pyramid, an art installation under construction in Wemding, Germany, is. And this art project was kicked off in 1993, 30 years ago, and they are adding a single block at a time once every 10 years. And the fourth block was installed on the 9th of September this year. And so uh, there will be 120 blocks in total, and it's due to be completed in 3183, in just over a thousand years. So uh, yeah, it's now 3.3% complete. (laughs) Sounds like roughly the speed at which some Chinese households are going to be getting their uh, real estate purchases for the last few years. (laughs) (laughs) My statistic of the week is something that's been built slightly quicker than that, and it's 350. Specifically, it's 350 kilometers per hour, which is roughly the top speed of the new Indonesian bullet train, which runs between Jakarta and Bandung, which is in West Java in Indonesia. It's just been completed, and I believe President Joko Widodo, who we had on the show previously, has taken one of the test drives now. I was trying to think about how many countries in the world that's faster than the fastest train goes. 
I think it's definitely faster than the fastest train in the US, where there is, I think, no high-speed rail. And I think it's probably faster than high-speed one in the UK there as well. So that's something cheerful to think about if you're British or American. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to sampling some uh, very high-speed rail in Japan over the next few weeks. Look after the show for me. I'll see you when I get back. Yes, I hope you have a wonderful time in Japan. And do not worry, because the jokes at your expense will not stop while you're away. With that, I think all that's left is for us to thank Rosalia Yao and Anne Stevenson-Yang. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus. There's more info in the show notes, along with the link to sign up for that special offer we mentioned. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Tom Lee Dublin. I'm Alice Fullwood. And this is The Economist. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,